I want to apologize. I've been all bogged down with producing, writing this documentary film for my buddies out on the West Coast. And so I have recorded new audio, but we're going to dip back because I want to take time to properly edit the new audio. We're going to dip back into the files, into the morgues, go back past the cobwebs, a whopping four years ago to one of the most wonderful people in broadcasting, in legacy broadcasting, Ramona Holloway. Ramona talked to me in 2020 in the middle of COVID. We sat on her front porch in Belmont, North Carolina, and we talked about her mom, who was still with us back then. And Ramona was such a wonderful daughter and such a lifelong friend to the end to her mother uh, in her waning years when her health, when Ramona was her caregiver, uh, moved her mother into the home and really took care of her. So I think you'll enjoy hearing from my friend and one of my heroes, Ramona Holloway. Everybody thinks everybody else is sick. You think I'm sick because I'm stupid enough to wear a mask. I think you're sick because you refuse. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. What more can be said about Ramona Holloway, broadcast legend? She's moved up into the management ranks in the radio world, but she's also been out there in the podcast world. She's just a warm, giving, friendly person who bought me lunch only recently, Ramona Holloway. Where were you born? Oberlin, Ohio. Hospital or home? Hospital. Do you know what hospital? Oberlin Hospital. Now okay. I think it's called Allen Memorial. And or maybe long, it's even changed since then. How long did you live there? Lived in Oberlin until I was four. Mm-hmm. Uh, born into my grandparents' home. And then my mom and I moved to New Jersey. What do you mean, born into your grandparents' home? Meaning that I have a single mom um, who, when she was pregnant, was living with her parents. So I wasn't born into a traditional home well, what we consider to be a traditional American home where you get get this mom and dad and they're expecting a baby and they put a little stork out front (laughs) and says, hey, you know, nine pounds and 15 ounces whopper of a baby born here. (laughs) You know, I I was born into my grandparents' home. Um, What has your mom told you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? Mm, um, Well, I'll start by telling you the story that my mom, before her dementia, if I left my mom alone with anyone who she did not know, or let's say it was a listener or a client of the radio station, if I left her alone long enough, she would tell them that I was a damn near 10 pound baby who was born in the middle of one of the hottest summers And when I came out of her, I ripped her from stem to stern. The other mothers were walking around the hospital in their negligees and makeup, (laughs) accepting visitors, and she could just lay there because she had been destroyed. 
how much of that is factually accurate? I mean, you know, nine pounds and 15 ounces. I'm good. I'm, I'm looking at what I got down there and I'm like, yeah, I bet that hurt. I, I bet you were ripped from stem to stern. I, I don't doubt that. One of the things that I have vowed to do until I don't have breath in me is to talk to moms about taking care of themselves. Because moms, and I'm guilty of this as a caregiver, you're so busy caring that you put yourself last. Uh, but all those things that you ignored, you know, that backache, that, you know, that lady problem, all of those things that you ignored because you put your kids first, your dental care, you know, all of that is gonna come back to haunt you. Yeah. And as it comes back to haunt you, it's coming back to haunt your children who are going to try to care for you. So your, your lack of self-care, A, it's teaching them not to care for themselves, only to allow, if no one's there to take care for you, then you're screwed because you can't care for yourself. You're, you're teaching your children by example that you ignore yourself and take care of others. Most of my friends are caring for parents at home. They, um, some have another relative who comes in and helps. Um, some have a paid caregiver. Um, and those who are using a facility have simply made the care community a different place. Because there is this, are there people who are like, you know what, I can't do dad anymore. I can't do mom anymore. I'm putting them somewhere and I'm going to write a check every month. We're done. But 99% of the people I know who've had to make the care community someplace other than mom's home or their home or dad's home and their home are people who understand that they can't provide the level of care necessary here because there will be injury because around-the-clock care isn't um, isn't feasible um, those people have moved the care community but they haven't removed the care I've given myself permission to say when when this isn't the best place for us because I also count too when this isn't the best place for us because if it's not good for me it's not gonna be good for her if I you know right now we're working on some sleep issues you know Saturday morning Mom's banging on the stairs saying, hey, hey. She either calls me hey or woohoo because she's forgotten my name. And, you know, I get come downstairs. There's poop all over her bedroom. There's poop all over her bathroom. She's standing there butt naked. And I'm like, oh, thank God this Good is morning. a day. Good morning. This is, thank God this isn't a day that I have to go to work. Yeah. So I understand that there might be a time when Ramona's need for sleep is greater and I can't keep her safe and healthy if I'm too tired um, to even try. Where does guilt play into all this? You want the, the deep answer? The, the deep truth. answer? I want the truth. Guilt is your ego oh. saying that you're bigger than Alzheimer's and dementia. My ego told me that I could fix this. I should be able to fix it. I should be able to manage it better. But no. How? 
there were some things that I needed to do to get myself together to accept the fact that this train was coming and if I stood in front of it and put my hand out, I'm not the superwoman who could stop it. It was coming anyway. And it was either gonna run me over or I was gonna step outside of the way, step out of the way and do everything I could to make sure that the train had a safe passage through town. That's all I'm doing. So my guilt that says, oh, you know, she needs a bath today but she hates baths and I'm really tired. So we're just gonna wash up today. You know who judges me? Me, all the time. So that's you judging you, thinking you get this ego, like you, you could have been something to dementia that medication and God weren't. Okay, well. Controlling the uncontrollable. Yeah, yeah, you go ahead with that guilt because it's gonna do nothing for you but make you feel bad and and I feel that that guilt, when I have it, it takes up the space that could be occupied with the fact that my mom wakes up with a smile on her face every day, mm. except for poop day. <laughs> but I go, I go in, I say, good morning. How's my Mima? And how's my puppy? Because the dog sleeps in the room with her. Oh, we're, we're hanging tough. She goes to bed. I, I tell her, you know, good night, sleep tight. And don't let the bed bugs bite. And if they do, beat them till they're black and blue. That's been our saying since I was a kid. I, I send her to bed with that every night and she smiles as I'm turning off the light and the dog settles next to her. She's happy. Was there something that happened, a particular moment in which you learned the hard way, I've got to take care of Ramona? I'd done a bunch of research about adult daycare and a lot of them just look sad. They look like I'd take her from sitting at our kitchen table, doing nothing, to someone else's long plastic table where she would sit there and do nothing. And I finally found uh, an adult daycare for people with memory issues and um, I dropped her off very first day. And you know they greeted her so warmly and it was so beautiful and you know, I. I felt good and as I walked out I said you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go to the dentist that was my big thing like you would think I'm gonna go shopping I'm gonna hey I'm gonna keep my my dental appointment I'm gonna I'm gonna make an appointment and I'm for the first time in how long probably about three years oh my god three years are there cultures or are we building a culture in which we're learning in which we um, understand that we got to put the oxygen mask on first as they say are, are we getting better about that are we I don't learning think so no I, I think we're, we're talking about it more um, I, I every this is magazine, not a male thing by no, the way you oh, know that right <laughs> yeah but I every woman's magazine pretty much has the words mindfulness and self-care on the cover because they know that that along with weight loss is going to sell magazines us teach me about tell me about getting a man or keeping a man tell me how to lose weight tell tell me how to take care of myself when i don't have time to take care of myself it when we truly look at balance it's this juggling act that's impossible to keep keep those two things even there's something always falling off and then i'm like well 
I got a mom more. I got to go in hard on the mom. Ooh, ooh, work is slipping. Got to go in on the work. Ooh, mom needs me. Ooh, and then I'm in the middle. What do you hope happens with you when you get older? Well, you know, maybe dementia, maybe something else. We're all going to get there. Yeah, and I've thought about, you know, I don't have children. I have a nephew, and people say, well, if you don't have siblings, how do you have a nephew? Which is why I love adoption stories, yeah. because my mom has a very good friend. They taught together in Columbus, and this friend tried very hard to get pregnant. And she did not conceive and carry a baby to term. So she decided to adopt, and she's white. And she adopted a biracial child. When she adopted him, she asked mom to be his grandmother and me to be his aunt so that he would have people in his life who taught him about the black experience because she realized no matter how much she read that there was a part of the culture that he could probably only understand if he was exposed to people who understood it better than she did, which was incredibly smart. So at five days old, when he came home from the hospital with his attorney, I was there and he's been a part of our lives forever. That being said, I'm still waiting for him to get his to get him to get his life 100% together. <laughs> he's like every other kid. I, I, and and the, you know, a couple of months ago his mom was ill and uh, he texted me like, "Oh my god, what am I going to do?" Because Grams is old and you're old and mom's old and I can't do this. And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not the age of your mother and Grams, okay? That's number one. Number two, you don't have to figure it out now. But I'm, I've told him what he will inherit from me. And I have instructions on, I, w I would like to go to a facility. I'd like to be in a community of other old people. I feel like I would thrive there, you know, Arch and Crafts Day, killing it. I feel like you'd be the queen. Color, coloring at another level. You'd be the queen bee. <laughs> yeah, I, music therapy day. I would be like my mom is at, at her daycare. She's like, she thinks she owns it. They're like, oh, they were doing music. Nobody was dancing. Uh, oh, she humble brags about it. Then I had to get up there and show everybody. <laughs> oh, she just comes home humble bragging. I feel like that would be me. You seem remarkably together. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, the facade is working. <laughs> no. Where, where does, how are you not engaged in a fair amount of self-pity? It's not my friend. Yeah. It's not my friend. Doesn't work? It's not my friend. It takes, I, I have talked about it publicly that I have clinical depression, not, I struggle with real depression, not I'm a little down today. I'm having a bad hair day. I can't get out of bed. Have to manage yeah. my depression. I have to manage my anxiety. And right now, it takes all the anxiety relief, meditation, prayer, and CBD I can can <laughs> can manage to to go out of the house. What role does faith? What does that look like? for you. It is everything. I'm learning to get on the other side and say, okay, God, I know you've got it. I know it's okay. I know. I just don't want to worry about when it's going to be okay and how it's going to be okay. I just need to understand.
So I'm, I'm still learning the faith part. But for me, like I do a, a thing on Facebook on Monday nights. I call it Ramona's Recovery Room. People think it's for them. I spend like 40 minutes to an hour talking myself into the good things that I believe. Like I know what I believe, but practicing is harder. So I need to hear myself say it. So people are like, oh, thank you for sharing your Monday night with us. I'm like, no, thank you for listening. Because I had to get this out. So I could hear myself say it. There's a phrase that I read somewhere that says, when we look back, we see that the things which happened when we placed ourselves in God's hands were better than what we ourselves could have planned. Like, when I look back and see what happens, I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward into the abyss. I'm not looking back that there's been this track record in which evidence, I've been okay. Evidence, 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 evidence. Yes. All I have is evidence. All I have is evidence. And I remember when I was in my 20s and I was working as a, a news producer at a radio station in Ohio. <laughs> and the receptionist and I, when I first started, we made the same amount of money. Yeah, we broke the rules. We talked about our salaries. We were making $15,000 a year. I was probably 25. And then she got a raise and she was making 15.5. It was like, oh my God, I'm making less than a receptionist. I'm here at 5.30 at the latest. I'm writing, you know, six newscasts every morning and- You're a star. And, and, I said, God, all I want is to make my age in salary. So God, when I'm 30, it's 25 at the time, when I'm 30, I just want to make $30,000 a year. When I'm 40, all I want to make is $40,000 a year. When I'm 50, because that was big money to me. Like, when I'm 50, let me make $50,000 a year. That's all I want. <laughs> God's done more than that for me. But what I thought was the ultimate in many situations was not the ultimate. And, but I, and I have evidence now, but at the time it's like, really? I speak lack because somewhere in my mind, I believe that I am one paycheck away from turning tricks at the Econolodge in Shelby to get money. Like there's something in my mind that says, you know what? Yeah. If, if, if this job goes away, you know, you and Weezy are gonna be out on the street, you know, maybe you can push her in one of those nice Walmart carts and have a little leash with the dog. Something in my mind tells me that that's where it will end, despite the evidence that I'm okay. So I have a friend who's like, you know, you really need to stop, you know, telling people that you spent $2 for your shoes. You know, you need to stop speaking poverty. You, you talk poverty. I haven't learned that yet. But you're aware. I'm aware. And the first I'm, step I'm aware is being that I'm aware. Not broke. Yeah, yeah, I'm aware that I'm not broke. 
I'm not going to take your whole day, but I have to ask you, um, how have your conversations on the air and off the air changed um, since George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera? Are you the go-to? Are you exhausted? Yes, uh, I am. People are wearing your ass out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you're over it? And, and that, and, no, and no, 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 I'm not over it. Because I realize, and this is one of the things I spoke about on my Monday night talk, because I needed to say it once again. The title was, I'm not sick, you're sick. Ah. When, in essence, everybody thinks everybody else is sick. You think I'm sick because I'm stupid enough to wear a mask. I think you're sick because you refuse. Mm -hmm. You think I'm sick because... I see racism everywhere, and I think you're sick because you can't. So, I feel like because I have spoken up about my experiences in a way that I never really have or felt the need to necessarily in my job, my, I, I don't work on a news talk station. My job is entertainment. I'm showing up with laughs. Some, some, some funny stuff, some interesting stuff. I'm trying to find ways to connect with my audience. And if my audience isn't primarily black, then my black experiences aren't necessarily that valuable in terms of finding things to connect over. If, if we're not connecting over mus- the music of my youth, which that's not what the music of my radio station, we're not connecting over our hair or where we go to church or our food I've got to find some other things but we're in a moment in history and um, kind of what brought it home to me was that uh, was that Michael Jordan documentary Mm. I loved it The Last Dance and um, Michael Jordan got a lot of flack for saying Republicans buy sneakers too because he realized his brand was not, he, he didn't want to support Harvey Gantt publicly because he felt that it would diminish his brand, that people would say he was taking sides and he wasn't taking sides. He was just selling sneakers. That's it. And there are people, he, he gave privately, gave his mom a nice little check t- to use politically, but he wasn't putting his name on it. And that would not work right now. We are at a place in our history where we expect our athletes and musicians to speak up and let us know what side they're on. You can't say, you know, I'm just here to make music. Well, you know what, you take your little music and you go elsewhere. You know, people, need, people want to know what you stand for. Not enough to shut up and sing. But then, those very people who would like to know where you stand if you don't stand in the same spot that they're standing in they want you to shut up and tell jokes so it's okay for me to speak up if we agree but if we don't just shut up and make me laugh and I have never painted myself on the air as one dimensional and I think that right now 
there are people who have connected with me for over a decade here in Charlotte, almost 20 years, who've connected it with me on a basic human level. They know I'm a woman. They know I like to shop. They know my bestie is wheezy. They know I was raised in Jersey. They know I love to decorate. And they know I love clothes and shoes. But because, because I haven't talked about my black experience, there are people who are just finding out that I walk through this world as a black woman, whether you recognize that I recognize it or not. Whether you think that the racism that I feel and see is just perceived, if I perceive it, then it's real. And if you don't perceive it, that's real to you. But I think there are some people who are just now figuring out, and it's, it's been a struggle for some people to understand that Ramona lives in two worlds. One very publicly on the air, and one privately. And there are only certain things from the private part that I share. And those are the parts that are funny. Yeah. And George Floyd ain't funny. I'm showing up saying, this is paint, George Floyd. Elijah McClain, that's painful to me. I, I see my nephew, who's six foot four, been in one fight his entire life in fourth grade, who got stopped in Belmont and searched because he got off of his motorcycle and they saw a little baggie hanging out of his pocket. And they were taking him down. You know what was in that baggie? Quarters. My mom puts everything in baggies of all sizes. And she had heard him say he wanted to wash his motorcycle. So she gave him a baggie full of quarters. My nephew could have been killed over a baggie of quarters. He could be that guy who's not following directions because he's making a split-second decision to show you, to prove to you, it's just a baggie of quarters. After that experience, uh, how did he process that? How, how, how you was... know what? I think the, the talks that I had with him, because I'm kind, of, I'm kind of the dude in his life. I said, Jeremy, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm telling you this, I'm going to give you 100% honesty, not because I'm trying to hurt your feelings, but because you need to hear the truth. I feel he used to come and spend spring break with me when he was in middle school and high school, and I would always let him bring a friend. And several times the friend he brought with him was a friend who was white. And this one particular time I lived in this neighborhood that had a pool. And when we were out walking the dog late one night, I'd let the guys jump the fence and jump into the pool. Cool, Ed. Like, okay, go ahead, jump in the pool. <laughs> I pay for this damn pool. So afterwards, after they splashed around in the pool for, you know, 20 minutes, you know, thinking like, we're the bad boys. His little friend, Josh, Josh is the bad idea bear. He's the bad idea bear. Yeah, gotta be one. Josh just says, as we're walking back to the house, like, you know what we should do? We should go back to the pool later. It's like, no, you know, 
Grams is going to hear you if you try to leave the house. You know, we could give her like something to sleep, like a sleeping pill. Then we can go back. I was like, first of all, if I wasn't with you and you guys got caught in that pool, Jeremy would be arrested. South Carolina, Lancaster County. How he got treated and you got treated would probably be very different. Neither one of you can spout out my address, can you? You say you're here visiting your aunt? A lot of people won't believe that his aunt lives in this neighborhood. You're going to think you're lying. Who's your aunt? Ramona Holloway? She's an only child. How is that your aunt? You're lying. You're out of here. What, what, what's her address? Will it give him an opportunity to come back to my house? So we had this long discussion about how things would be different if they were caught breaking the rules. Did they and seem to get that? No, I know, I know. It was kind of like, ah. In that moment, probably eight years later in Belmont, I think my nephew finally understood. And it just speaks to the unlearning that we have to do. Because when I told you my nephew was adopted at birth, he was five days old when his white mom made it official. Her chosen child was him and he was this adorable brown baby and she had asked my brown family to be a part of their family so that he could have brown people to give him that talk. And I remember we were coming home from church one Sunday and Jeremy was learning the colors in school and he was so proud of himself. He was like, you know what? Grandma, you're brown. Yep, Jeremy, that's right. Miss Mona, you're brown. That's so true, Jeremy. And I'm brown too. Yes, you are. And mommy is, and we're like, oh, here we go. Peach. <laughs> mommy is peach. Yep, she is. It's, it's a very peachy glow. <laughs> Having watched Jeremy grow up, and be a part of your family. Um, what do you think the biggest sort of questions um, any white mother or father should think about when considering whether to adopt a child of another uh, race or or, or color. You know, on one hand, I know people who say they don't see color mean very well. They mean well, and they want this beautiful blended family of children of all colors. And inside that house, that's exactly the way it is. But once your children step foot outside that door, it's going to be different. Wealth gets them a certain measure of respect. It gets them a certain education where you live, oftentimes. But we do our children a disservice when we don't talk about our differences. Because when that black kid realizes that the world thinks they're different, they need to know that being different is okay. This is just how we roll. Other people don't roll like we do. That's okay. We're good. You're good. 
we love, but when we ignore it and pretend like that's not what we do. You know, what happens when they get stopped and, and they don't know that a black man has to keep his hands on the wheel and the black man has to do this and he has to do that. He can't, you know, it's, I'll give you an example. It was, we, we used it for comedy on the show, but it, in, uh, honestly, if, if it wasn't on the radio and in the context of our show, a lot of people would be offended and maybe some people would be anyway. Um, we were talking about how to get out of a ticket on the radio show. And for those who are listening to the podcast who don't know, the Matt and Ramona show, which I do 3 to 7, Monday through Friday, 107.9 in Lincoln, Charlotte. I am a black woman. He is a white man. And we were talking about how to get out of a speeding ticket. And we talked about, you know, whether or not you had the courage to pass a police car on the highway. Like... They're going the speed limit or maybe one mile per hour below the speed limit. Do you go ahead and pass them? We were talking about that. And Matt said, you know, he said, when you pass them, do you eyeball them? Like trying to figure out why they're going so slow. And I'm like, eyeball the cops. Are you just flaunting your white privilege right now? And no damn way I'm eyeballing cops. Was like, he who does serious? That? Was he just like? He was serious. He was like, do you eyeball him? Like, you know, trying to figure out like, why are you going so slow? Why are you holding up traffic? Ugh. No, I'm not trying to get. I, I know people who've been stopped for eyeballing cops. No, no. For looking at the no. police. No, no, sir. I'm not that comfortable. What are you healing? Um, abandonment. You know, I spoke before we turned on the recorder for your excellent podcast. You're being, you're doing a very good job of listening, Stuart. You are such a listener today. Um, but um, my, you know, that uh, those teachers who you thought were having an affair when you were in school, they probably were. That was the French teacher, my mom, and my dad, the science teacher. Uh, I am their baby. My birth father went on to uh, get his doctorate and become a very well-known educator and mentor of young men who were fatherless in their community. But to this day, he pretends like I don't exist because I was born outside of his marriage. Does so, he acknowledge that you're his daughter? Oh, he's privately. We've had two conversations in my life. Hard and, to argue with DNA. Right. And um, he acknowledges that I'm his, but he to me, but will not acknowledge me publicly or to his family. The, the, the last voice-to-voice -voice conversation we had when I was in college was he needed time to prepare his wife and his children, the ones with his wife, to know about me. And that once he had basically come clean to them about my existence, then he and I could have a relationship. That ever happened? No, I never heard from him again. And, and you didn't push it either? Um, I did not push it because I, I got the hint. It was hurt, it was hurtful. I was very depressed. Um, and then probably about six years or so ago, he has a son who's a junior. And I typed his name in Facebook, and Junior came up. 
So I sent a direct message to Junior, introducing myself. I had heard through my aunt, who's still in, in the same town, and um, my father was uh, doing some substitute teaching and consulting at uh, a school where she was working as a private duty nurse for a special needs child. She was like, oh, I heard this about your dad. And then she later heard that he had uh, been hospitalized and went from a hospital to a nursing home. So I felt like, ooh, he's, he's getting close to the end. I would like to face to face with him before he dies, just to see his face. And so I reached out to Junior on Facebook, introducing myself and saying that I didn't want anything except to see my father face to face before he died. And the very next day, he blocked me. It was horrible. Un totally unwanted. Like, wow, you got a sister out here. When you see these stories on Facebook and on Oprah about long-lost sisters who are kind of awesome, I've got my own radio show, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay. It's not like you have this long-lost sister showing up with you know, 14 kids by 14 different dudes asking for money, trying to rip you off. You, I'm an okay person. I turned out all right. God forbid if, if we're struck by lightning right here and all that survives is this tape, um, what, what's your legacy? That's a good one. I feel my gift is storytelling. I want people to understand that I told stories to heal. With laughter, sometimes. With laughter and lessons, sometimes. And with tears, sometimes. But it was always an effort to leave the room better than I found it. Thank you. I admire you. And I'm Aww. grateful for your time. Thank you for listening. <laughs> God bless you. In my business, listening pays my bills. <laughs> <laughs>
a small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported all my wacky ideas from manlistening.com to In Her Words, the podcast to voicelocket.com. And now we're doing the CLT first thing, which is a lot of fun with my friend, Amy Bristol. Get it right, Amy Bristol. Another one of those great voices. See you next week. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.